The Radical Wesley, Part 2, Rethinking the Church. Chapter 6, What is the Church? John Wesley knew what he was doing. He was sufficiently steeped in church history and Anglican ecclesiology to understand that the concept of the church was at stake in his reforming mission. From early in his ministry, he pondered basic questions about the nature, form, and function of the Christian church. The major sources of Wesley's ecclesiology were the Catholic tradition mediated through Anglicanism and the radical Protestant tradition mediated mainly through the Moravians. Perhaps it would be more accurate to say his views on the church were essentially those of 17th century Anglicanism, but interpreted in such a way as to conform to the believer's church understanding of the Christian community. There were, of course, other tributary streams of influence, such as Puritanism. Wesley's first conscious consideration of ecclesiological questions can be traced to the years 1725 to 1728, when he began in earnest his quest for inward holiness. His reading for ordination would have introduced him to three important themes, the life of holiness, the importance of the sacraments, and the authority of the tradition of the primitive church. He accepted these views wholeheartedly, all of which were matters of ecclesiology as much as soteriology. Frank Baker noted that Wesley firmly accepted the Via Media of the Church of England as incorporated in Kramer's Book of Common Prayer and expounded in turn by Jewell as the fulfillment of Scripture and the Fathers and by Hooker as the crown of human reasoning. The Church of England, which Wesley always considered overall the best in Christendom, was the middle way between Catholicism and Protestantism. John Jewell and Richard Hooker had defended the Church of England against both Rome and extreme Puritanism, arguing that the Anglican Church was most compatible with Scripture and reason. Albert Outler summarizes the principal points of Jewell's ecclesiology as presented in his Apologia pro Ecclesia Anglicana, under five heads, quote, 1. The Church's subordination to Scripture. 2. The Church's unity in Christ and the essentials of doctrine. 3. The notion that paradigmata, normative teaching, for ecclesiology should be drawn from the patristic age. 4. The apostolic doctrine. 5. The idea of a functional episcopacy as belonging to the Church's well-being rather than its essence. Unquote. All these strands were woven permanently into Wesley's view of the church. Development of Wesley's Views Wesley examined questions of ecclesiology during his stay in Georgia. With his strong, practical reforming bent, he was especially interested in church order. Thus, point five, functionality rather than once-for-all predetermined structure, was especially important. Confronting a missionary situation brought these questions into focus with new urgency. Wesley's father had urged him to read the sermons of Bishop William Beveridge as being perhaps as like those of the apostolic ages as any between them and us. Beveridge, like Jeremy Taylor, was one of the non-juniors who refused to take the oath to William and Mary in 1689 and emphasized a life of deep devotion and sacramental piety. While in Georgia, Wesley read Beveridge's Synodicon, a compilation of canons or regulations from early Greek councils which included the so-called apostolic canons. This reading, according to Baker, convinced Wesley of two things, that he had put too much stake in church tradition compared with Scripture, since some councils' decisions went beyond the Bible, and that consequently the foundation on which he had been building his ecclesiology was unsound. 
Wesley had previously put great stock in the apostolic canons, but Beaverridge convinced him that these were not as ancient or authentic as he had assumed. This meant scripture and tradition were not an unbroken line, but that tradition sometimes clashed with scripture. In cases of conflict, tradition must give way. This was a radical new insight for Wesley. Wesley continued to investigate matters of church order throughout his stay in Georgia. He dug into the question of episcopy and the validity of Moravian orders and lay baptism, baptism by unordained ministers. His study gradually led him to see church order more as a relative and less as an absolute matter. He discovered that many forms and practices had grown up through accumulated ecclesiastical tradition with no real biblical basis. Yet, he felt matters of order and structure were very important. Already, he had a keen sense of the place of structures and forms in Christian life and the life of the church. Back in England, Wesley continued to move toward a more functional view of church order without, however, departing from Anglican views, which ranged over a broad spectrum. Baker notes, Already by 1746, Wesley saw the essence of the church and its ministry as functional rather than institutional. Similarly, Robert Monk observes, Wesley was willing rather early in his evangelical career to recognize the validity of various forms of church order. This recognition was not, however, foreign to Anglican divines, either in Wesley's own time or during the preceding two centuries. Though Wesley was unsympathetic to the views of the so-called Latitudinarians on most points, it was two Latitudinarian writers who led him further toward a more functional view of the church. In 1746, Wesley read Lord Peter King's Account of the Primitive Church, and about the same time, Edward Stillingfleet's Irenicon. According to Baker, these books continued the slow transformation in Wesley's views on the church, which was already happening due to Wesley's other readings and especially his personal faith and growing ministry as evangelist and pastor. Wesley himself wrote, quote, I still believe the Episcopal form of church government to be both scriptural and apostolical. I mean, while agreeing with the practice and writings of the apostles, but that it is prescribed in Scripture, I do not believe. In this opinion, which I once heartily espoused, I have been heartily ashamed of ever since I read Bishop Stillingfleet's Irenicon. I think he has unanswerably proved that neither Christ nor his apostles prescribed any particular form of church government, and that the plea of divine right for diocesan episcopy was never heard of in the primitive church. These important shifts happened during the crucial first decade or so of Wesley's ministry following Aldersgate in 1738 and the beginning of field preaching in 1739. Wesley was soon appointing lay preachers, and the views of King and Stillingfleet confirmed him in the legitimacy of this move. Their arguments were to prove important later in the question of Wesley's right or authority to ordain clergy for America. By 1750, Wesley was clear as to his basis of authority. According to Baker, his basis now was the Anglican triad of Scripture, reason, and antiquity, strongly reinforced by an intuitive individualistic approach deriving in part both from pietist and mystical influence. The appeal to reason, however, had developed into an urgent pragmatism, in Wesley's hands, the Anglican triad was, in effect, expanded to include personal experience and the created order. 
Based on his own spiritual pilgrimage and his encounters with the Moravians and Pietists, Wesley increasingly saw the key role of experience in understanding the nature of salvation. Then, over the years, he more and more appealed to God's self-disclosure in the created order, the wisdom of God in creation, as a key source both theologically and ethically. Wesley's emphasis on experience led Albert Outler in the 20th century to coin the term Wesleyan quadrilateral as a way of describing Wesley's expansion of the Anglican triad to include the key role of experience. The Wesleyan quadrilateral thus consists of scripture, reason, tradition, and experience, with scripture as the norming norm to be placed above all other authority. The quadrilateral has become a popular way of describing Wesley's theology or theological method. As will be discussed later, the Wesleyan quadrilateral has been much used, abused, and criticized. In my view, its major flaw is that it fails to appreciate Wesley's appeal to the created order. Including creation in Outler's model would require either an awkward pentalateral or else a quite different model. Wesley was a man of reason in an age of rationalism, yet he was roundly charged with enthusiasm or fanaticism because of his stress on experience and his openness to the expression of emotion. He was at once a high churchman and a pietist, a traditionalist and an innovator, a biblicist and an experientialist, but he was always clear as to the priority of Scripture, especially from 1738 on and his experiential emphasis was guarded from pure subjectivism, not only by his respect for Scripture, but also by his emphasis on the witness of the Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit testifying to and confirming the Word in present experience. Wesley's conception of the Church grew out of this matrix. Both Wesley's actions and his writings show that his ecclesiology combined two very different visions of the Church— Frank Baker has noted this, commenting, quote, Throughout his adult life, Wesley responded with varying degrees of enthusiasm to two fundamentally different views of the church. One was that of the historical institution, organically linked to the apostolic church by a succession of bishops and inherited customs served by a priestly caste who duly expounded the Bible and administered the sacraments in such a way as to preserve the ancient traditions on behalf of all who were made members by baptism. According to the other view of the church was a fellowship of believers who shared both the apostolic experience of God's living presence and also a desire to bring others into this same personal experience by whatever methods of worship and evangelism seemed most promising to those among them whom the Holy Spirit had endowed with special gifts of prophecy and leadership. The first view saw the church in essence as an ancient institution to be preserved, the second as a faithful few with a mission to the world. The first was a traditional rule, the second a living relationship. Unquote. At one level, these two views of the church look a lot like the distinction Ernst Trolch made between church and sect. We might label them the institutional and the charismatic perspectives. The question is, are these two perspectives mutually exclusive or in some way complementary? This question and what it says for church life and renewal today will be investigated in some detail in chapter 10. While Wesley never rejected the institutional or the charismatic understanding of the church, his heart was with the latter. 
His lifelong mission was an effort to infuse the institutional church with the life of renewed Christian community and active discipleship. Toward the end of his life, when he had already ordained leaders for American Methodism, Wesley published his sermon of the church and on schism. These show Wesley with essentially the same view of the church he had come to by 1750. To those who thought Wesley's actions were inconsistent with his profession of loyalty to the Church of England, he responded, quote, And they cannot but think so, unless they observe my two principles, the one that I dare not separate from the church, that I believe it would be a sin so to do, the other that I believe it would be a sin not to vary from it in the points above mentioned. I say, put these two principles together. First, I will not separate from the church. Yet secondly, in cases of necessity, I will vary from it, both of which I have constantly and openly avowed for upwards of fifty years. And inconsistency vanishes away. I have been true to my profession from 1730 to this day. Unquote. He was entirely consistent. Wesley said, We act at all times in one plain uniform principle. We will obey the rulers and governors of the church, whenever we can, consistently with our duty to God. Whenever we cannot, we quietly obey God rather than men. Wesley could still say at the end of his life, I am fully convinced that our own Church of England, with all her blemishes, is nearer the scriptural plan than any other in Europe. What is church? Wesley began his explanatory notes upon the New Testament in 1743 and completed them in 1754, drawing mainly on the work of the noted contemporary pietist scholar J.A. Bengal. Here Wesley gives some of his most succinct descriptions of the church. The church is the believers in Christ, the whole body of Christian believers, the whole body of true believers, whether on earth or in paradise. Perhaps Wesley's comment on Acts 5.11 gives the clearest insight into his understanding of the New Testament church, a company of men called by the gospel, grafted into Christ by baptism, animated by love, united by all kind of fellowship, and disciplined by the death of Ananias and Sapphira. In his sermon of the church, Wesley said the church is, in the proper sense, a congregation or body of people united together in the service of God. Even two or three united in Christ's name or a Christian family may therefore be called a church. The primary expression of the church is the visible, gathered, local congregation. But in a broader sense, church means the Catholic or universal church, that is, all the Christians under heaven, understood as made up of all the local congregations in the world. In a letter to a Roman Catholic in 1749, Wesley said, quote, I believe that Christ by his apostles gathered unto himself a church, to which he has continually added such as shall be saved, that this Catholic, that is, universal church, extending to all nations and all ages, is holy in all its members, who have fellowship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that they have fellowship with the holy angels, who constantly minister to these heirs of salvation, and with all the living members of Christ on earth, as well as all who are departed in his faith and fear." Unquote. 
Wesley felt he could reconcile the New Testament understanding of the church with Article 19 of the Anglican 39 Articles. He wrote, quote, A visible church, as our article defines it, is a company of faithful or believing people, coitus credentium. This is the essence of a church, and the properties thereof are, as they are described in the words that follow, that the pure word of God be preached therein, and the sacraments duly administered. Now then, according to this authentic account, what is the Church of England? What is it, indeed, but the faithful people, the true believers of England? It is true, if these are scattered abroad, they come under another consideration. But when they are visibly joined by assembling together to hear the pure word of God preached, and to eat of one bread and drink of one cup, they are then properly the visible Church of England." Wesley translated faithful men in the article as congregation of believers on the basis of the Latin coetus credentium. Actually, the Latin version had coetus fidelium. Wesley said he did not propose to defend this definition, but he thought it was compatible with Scripture. Actually, he is straining here toward a more biblical and believer's church interpretation of what is primarily a rather institutional and sacramental formula a formula going back to the Lutheran Osberg Confession of 1530 and even before. The words in the article in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments duly administered, Wesley interpreted more functionally than formally. They meant that any congregation where the gospel was not truly preached or the sacraments not duly administered was neither a part of the Church of England nor of the universal church. Yet Wesley was charitable toward improper practices and even wrong doctrines if a congregation gave evidence of the Spirit's genuine presence. Quote, Whoever they are that have one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one God, and Father of all, I can easily bear with their holding wrong opinions, yea, and superstitious modes of worship. Nor would I on these accounts scruple still to include them within the pale of the Catholic Church. Neither would I have any objection to receive them, if they desired it, as members of the Church of England. Unquote. His sermon, Catholic Spirit, shows how far he was willing to go in recognizing different groups as genuinely belonging to the universal Church. We must both act as each is fully persuaded in his own mind. Hold you fast that which you believe is most acceptable to God, and I will do the same. I believe the Episcopal form of church government to be scriptural and apostolical. If you think the Presbyterian or Independent is better, think so still, and act accordingly. I believe infants ought to be baptized, and that this may be done by either dipping or sprinkling. If you are otherwise persuaded, be so still, and follow your own persuasion. It appears to me that forms of prayer are of excellent use, particularly in the great congregation. If you judge extemporary prayer to be of more use, act suitable to your own judgment. My sentiment is that I ought not to forbid water wherein persons may be baptized, and that I ought to eat bread and drink wine as a memorial of my dying master. However, if you are not convinced of this, act according to the light you have. I have no desire to dispute with you one moment upon any of the preceding heads." Unquote. Wesley could not have said such things had he not already decided that these questions do not touch the essence of the church. 
They were important questions, but finally secondary. At heart, the church was the community of God's people. Defining the church as a congregation of faithful believers does, however, point to some ambivalence and ambiguity, if not inconsistency, in Wesley. On the one hand, the Church of England was essentially the faithful people, or true believers, visibly assembled together in word and sacrament. But on the other hand, Wesley virtually accused the Church of England of being apostate. There are only a few in England whose inmost soul is renewed after the image of God, he wrote in 1763. And as for a Christian visible church, or a body of Christians visibly united together, where is this to be seen? Wesley considered the Church of England, and the whole Christian church generally, to be in a largely fallen state. In some formal sense, the Church of England, with its structures and liturgy, was still a true church. But in fact and spirit, the true church was really the small groups of faithful believers scattered throughout the Anglican and other communions. In fact, Wesley saw the Methodist societies as comprising to a large degree, but not exclusively, the true visible church within Anglicanism. Yet, as Methodism grew, he recognized that not even all Methodists were true believers or faithful men, and that as time went on, this would be increasingly so. Outler summarizes Wesley's mature understanding of the church, what he calls the classical Methodist ecclesiology, as follows, quote, 1. The unity of the church is based upon the Christian koinonia in the Holy Spirit. 2. The holiness of the church is grounded in the discipline of grace, which guides and matures the Christian life from its threshold in justifying faith to its fullness in sanctification. 3. The Catholicity of the Church is defined by the universal outreach of redemption, the essential community of all true believers. 4. The Apostolicity of the Church is gauged by the secession of apostolic doctrine in those who have been faithful to the apostolic witness. Unquote. This is an apt summary. The Church is one because, in all ages and nations, it is the one body of Christ, endued with faith working by love. Its holiness consists in the holiness of its members, because every member thereof is holy, though in different degrees, as he that called them is holy. No unholy man can possibly be a member of it. It is Catholic because it is the people of God dispersed over the whole earth in Europe, Asia, Africa, and America. And it is apostolic, for there has been an interrupted apostolic witness to the gospel through a faithful community and faithful ministers down through history.